All right, so I go out there and just start interviewing patients at this arts program. So this is Laura Starczewski at the Living Museum. It's March 7th, 2005. It's called the Living Museum. And I'm recording for a possible broadcast. It's inside one of those old crumbling buildings. It's a chaotic place, two stories, lots of rooms, filled with decades' worth of Creedmoor patients' artwork. And what kind of artwork have you done? Most of the people I talked to were kind of hard for me to connect with. But then I walked into this one room. On the wall, there was this huge oil painting, very detailed, very realistic. It was a parody of The Last Supper. <laughs> the artist was a patient named Isa Ibrahim. Isa didn't look like the other Creedmoor patients. He acted and dressed more like a downtown artist. Converse sneakers, tight black peg leg jeans, a cool t-shirt. <laughs> no, but uh... Isa showed me another one of his paintings. The room was full of them, called The First Kiss. Oh. As for someone special in my life. He told me he had a girlfriend, Susan, a former patient he'd met in the hospital. They'd been together on and off for about 10 years. Every Sunday we, we spend together for like three, four hours. And we talk and we listen to music. I just introduced her to the yeah, yeah, yeahs. And she likes them. I stayed for a while talking to Isa that day. The next time I came back, I went looking for um, him. I just wanted to see how you've been doing. What, what have the last couple great. of weeks been? And the more we talked... Uh, the more sane he seemed. I couldn't make sense of the situation. Issa didn't seem sick to me. And if he wasn't sick, why was he still at Creedmoor? I kept going back. Eventually, I asked Issa why he was in the hospital. Would you feel comfortable telling me that story of how you came here? Uh, off mic, maybe. It's a, it's a tough thing. Because it's, it's weird. Um, All I knew was that he had no contact with his family. He'd just turned 40, and he'd been at Creedmoor for more than a decade. He would always tell his girlfriend Susan to move on, to go live her life. Because even though he dreamed of being an artist out in the city, building a life with Susan, the truth was he had no idea when he would actually get out of the hospital, if he would ever actually get out of the hospital. It's scary because this is your life in their hands. You don't want somebody to kind of wait for you, which is what it is. Indefinite waiting, and that's, that's hell. I knew Issa for six years before I found out the reason he was first sent to Creedmoor. His story starts when he was two years old, when his destiny in life was first revealed. He was meant to become a great artist. Issa grew up in a big family. He had two brothers and two sisters. They lived in a house way out in Queens. I came from a very bohemian, artsy, jazzy, beatnik, hippie household. So the house was full Artists, musicians, writers, the, the intelligentsia. Issa's dad, Jamil Ibrahim, was a jazz musician, a bass player who ran with the greats of the 50s and 60s. His mom, Audrey, was a model and a painter. The Ibrahim house was sort of a creative utopia, but it wasn't always peaceful. His parents fought sometimes. There were parties late into the night. I talked to two of Issa's siblings, his sister Karen and his older brother, Isaac. It was always a full house, always a full house. Just so many things going on, drinking, smoking, and everything else. Isa was born in 1965. His name means Jesus in Arabic. Well, he was the baby of the bunch, you know, and he, I, I, think he, I think he was one of mom's favorites. All the good looks, all the talent, all the brains, all the everything, Issa had it. All Issa did was draw, 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 draw. Issa would be sitting down eating dinner. He drawing. He knew that's what he wanted to do. 
yeah, that was his thing. Issa's earliest memories are of painting with his mom. I remember being two and three and four years old and her sitting me down at her feet while she's painting this gigantic painting of a Mao Zedong with a purple head or a, a red Fidel Castro. She did these iconic uh, leaders. She did a gigantic Idi Amin. And she'd whisper to me while I'm drawing, doing my little doodles by her feet. She, you're going to be greatest. You're going to be the greatest ever. Issa's whole family was banking on his talent. They were sure he'd be a famous artist one day. But then when Issa was 22, his dad collapsed on stage. Within a year, he was dead of cancer. And Issa started smoking a ton of weed to cope with the grief. Isak had left home to serve in the Air Force by this point. But when he came home on leave, Issa seemed different. He started to think there was something wrong with him because, you know, okay, well, he's always in his room. You know, he'd creep out from time to time, and that was basically his sanctuary. Soon, Issa was afraid to eat certain foods. He said there was a plot to poison him. He didn't trust anyone. When family came by to visit, Issa shouted at them to leave. People stopped coming by the house for fear, you know, out of fear, because they didn't know what was going on. Issa had holed himself up in his bedroom upstairs, the only one of the kids left living at home. And Issa himself knew something was wrong. Back in Queens, he felt like everyone had turned against him. He tried talking to his mom, but he didn't really have the words to explain what was happening. I said, Ma, I think I'm losing my mind. And she said, please don't let it be mental. Don't say it's mental. She made me right, right, right lay down on the couch, put my head in her lap, and rub the healing oil in my head. But the healing oil didn't help. And Issa just felt stranger and stranger. One night, in February 1990, Issa was getting on the subway. And he looked around at all the other people on the platform to find that they were all looking back at him. Everyone I felt was looking at me as if to say, let's talk. Let's talk, communicate. It's happening tonight. Issa was terrified. He rode the train for hours. When he finally got back to Queens around 1 o'clock in the morning, the only one home was his mom. And I heard voices for the first time. Just, it was almost like having a radio on and someone whizzing the dial. That's exactly what it felt like, exactly what it sounded like in my head. But the things they were saying were about me, you know. You're going to die in two days. Uh, they found a free kill for AIDS. You can have sex all you want. So-and-so is the Antichrist, and you gotta kill him. Issa heard a voice tell him he was Jesus. He turned on the TV and started flipping the channels. He saw messages from NASA, from Magic Johnson, about mass killings and the second coming. The people on the TV were talking directly to him, and he was talking back. And my mom said, sound like you're having a party up there. You know, like, you know, People talking to me. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, Mom, am I Jesus? And she paused for a moment, and this is what would confound me perhaps for the rest of my life. And she said, yes. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I thought I saw in her face something evil. And I'm looking at her. And I see her face shifting as if a paved road in the, in the summertime, you know. I'm, I'm seeing what I believe to be evil underneath my mother's face. And then, Issa says, he attacked her. She's screaming and 
She's wrestling with me with, with tremendous strength because she's fighting for her life. Isa has to exercise the evil, the demon inside his mother. It's the only way to save her. She keeps trying to get away, but she can't. Isa's too strong. This struggle in the upstairs bedroom of Isa's childhood home goes on for at least an hour. And she's still moving, and I, I'm, I'm getting tired. And I didn't know what to do, and she's still possessed. So I thought, let me just hold her down for a moment and think for a moment. And so I put my knee on her chest, and uh, I just put my knee on her chest, but it collapsed. It collapsed. It broke her sternum and her rib cage. And uh, all I could hear were her ribs cracking. And that's a sound I'll never forget. And I just knew right then I f***ed up. After hearing her ribs crack, you know, I, I couldn't believe what I did. <clears throat> and uh, I stood above her and her body was pulsing. And a little bit of dark red blood came to her mouth and her eyes closed. And, and within a... Uh, Within a couple of seconds, she stopped moving, she stopped pulsing, and uh, she was gone. Mom's dead, and Issa, you know, killed us. Here's Issa's brother, Isaac. I was, hmm, what's the word I can use? I just couldn't, I couldn't understand it, you know, and it, it, it was beyond anger and sadness. It was just somewhere else totally. No one in Issa's family could make sense of what had happened. When Issa was arrested, the police took one look at him and saw that he needed antipsychotic medication. To them, it was obvious that he was completely out of his mind. By the time he ended up in front of a judge, everyone in that courtroom had already taken sides. I'm looking around. I look into the back of the, of the courtroom, and I see my, uh, my nephew, my older brother, and one of my mother's oldest uh, friends, they all had such hatred in their eyes. Such hatred in their eyes. Issa's family was desperate to see him pay for what he'd done. His brother even considered taking revenge and killing Issa himself. But on the other side of the courtroom was a psychiatrist who had examined Issa and said, no, he was psychotic when he killed his mother. He's not responsible for what he did. He should take a plea not guilty by reason of insanity, and go to a hospital for treatment instead of a prison for punishment. Usually when we think of the insanity defense, we think of someone who committed a crime trying to get away with it. The funny thing is that Issa did not come down on the side of this that you'd expect. Like his family, he thought he deserved to be punished. He'd be ashamed to go to the hospital after what he'd done. I felt I was guilty. In my mind, I knew that I was responsible. My lawyer pled not guilty. And I wanted to say something, but he was like, shh, 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 shh. So in that moment, Issa didn't stand up and make a speech about his guilt. And instead of taking the offer from the DA, five to 15 years in prison, he went with his lawyer's advice, and he chose the hospital, where there would be no sentence and no release date. Rather than getting a free ride or getting off, it's actually it's difficult. In some ways, it can be more difficult than going to prison. That's Dr. Larry Siegel again, the forensic psychiatrist. You subject yourself to indefinite confinement, and some people just can't get better. And they've been in for years and years. Getting better would mean that the hospital would have to be sure Isa wasn't sick anymore. He'd gotten a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, 
and they'd have to be sure that he wouldn't hurt anyone again. That can take decades. Some patients like Issa die in the hospital. When Issa got to Creedmoor, he started at what's called level one, no privileges. Initially, he was on a locked ward. Uh, Most of the wards at Creedmoor are locked. Issa was put on a ward with 30 or 40 other patients. They were all herded into a day room at 6.30 a.m. The radio and the TV were always on at the same time. Hip-hop top 40, Jerry Springer, and The Price is Right on an endless loop. Issa felt saner than he had in years because he was finally on medication. No more paranoia, no voices, no delusions, and in a stroke of luck, no side effects. Issa made it through the first week. And then on the weekend, he was introduced to a Saturday morning ritual. The doctors and the social workers weren't around, and the therapy aides were in charge. They'd sit behind a desk and call out the patients one by one. Klein, get over here. And Klein would come. Remember on Tuesday when you took those two puddings? Remember that? Into the bathroom. And you'd hear them go into the bathroom. And then they'd come out, you know, kind of shielding them. And they wouldn't get hurt, but they'd be smacked around. And that's how they kept order. Issa carefully watched who got punished and for what. I I would sit there and kind of try to blend into the wall and go gray. (laughs) Because, you know, you just didn't know when your time would come up. So during the day, Issa followed the rules and steered clear of any kind of confrontation. And soon he realized that at night, he could steal a few hours of total freedom, starting at midnight, when the staff left the patients alone to sleep. They just did, did, did a count, and now they won't be back again until 6 in the morning. I've got five, six hours to do a painting, and I'd work all night. Because at night, he would never be interrupted or watched. He could paint whatever he wanted. He felt that pull of destiny returning. He could still be an artist. The first thing Issa did was a self-portrait. Autopsy of the Damned. Uh, It's me on a gurney with a scalpel and a pair of scissors by my head. And it's me laying there with my chest open as if in an autopsy. And there are no rib cage and there's no heart. There's nothing inside at all. It's like a void, an emptiness. I was deep in this void, trying to figure out what's in there. Is there anything in there? Where's your heart? Where's your soul? What's in there? What are you made of? You know what you did. Why'd you do it? Did you mean to do it? No, you didn't mean to do it, but, I mean, like, how could this happen? I didn't think anybody would see it. I just did did it for myself. Issa loved the way Autopsy of the Dam turned out. He hung it up on the wall of his room and kept painting. He did a few dirty paintings to amuse himself. This one, oh my, uh, is another oil. Then, twisted caricatures of his captors at Creedmoor. Uh, This is Chain of Command. He painted the deputy director of the hospital wearing a Nazi soldier's uniform, sucking on a lemon. (laughs) (laughs) He painted the clinical director as a monkey with a human face. That was a good painting, it was a good painting. And after a while, I had my whole room decorated with paintings. He started doing so well that the hospital experimented with taking him off his medication. It was almost like he was living real life. So I tried to live the best way I could live, you know. If there was a painting opportunity, if there was a, if there was a sexual opportunity, I wasn't taking advantage of anybody. I wanted to have a relationship with somebody, someone to get to know me and I can get to know somebody else. In fact, there were a few women that Issa got to know. 
There was Susan, the patient who would become his longtime girlfriend. Issa met her at Creedmoor's neglected library. But he was, you know, what I loved about Issa, he was so respectful. I mean, he took me into like abandoned buildings and did nothing with me. All he wanted to do was hold my hand. Issa and Susan started painting together at the Living Museum. Issa had dreadlocks, and Susan liked to wear a black cape. And before long, they were known as the It Couple on Creedmoor's grounds. We really stood out. Yeah. Plus, we didn't look mentally ill, that's why. We well, stood out I when did. you think about it. I hey, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we used to say that all the time. Who's sicker than who today? <laughs> Who's sicker than who? <laughs> Meanwhile, Issa had been assigned a social worker on his ward named Connie. She was in her 60s, and Issa was 27. She was Issa's therapist. She advocated for him in court. She helped him line up gallery shows at Lincoln Center and all around New York State so he could start showing his art. And as time went by, Issa says, their relationship became romantic, too. And Connie started doing what Issa calls her own type of social work. Because she knew, she knew what institutionalization did to people, and she knew what it would do to me or anybody. She didn't want me to get stuck, become a part of the furniture. So during the day, she'd tell Issa to just breeze by the guards at the front gates and go wait around the corner from the hospital, and she'd pick him up in her car. She'd just take me on drives. She'd just take me on drives, you know? They'd drive to the ocean, sit on the beach, and talk. Once, Connie drove him to a cemetery on Long Island to see his mother's headstone. Totally against the rules and totally messed up. And, and, and some people look at it and say, this, this woman's out of her mind. But man, was it a beautiful thing. Issa says they went off the grounds constantly. Until one day, they were seen driving away from Creedmoor in Connie's car. They saw us go off grounds. That was the end of the story. That was the end of the story. Connie took an early retirement, and Issa got knocked back down to level one. No privileges. No more painting at the Living Museum. He had to stay inside, on the ward, all the time. That's what happens when you lose your levels. You have to start from scratch. But Dr. Siegel says that Issa shouldn't have been penalized for what happened with Connie. He was a patient. When someone's in a hospital, you should look at the staff to behave appropriately. The end, period, final. Some of the evaluators from Creedmoor seem to think that uh, his behavior in the hospital was indicative of problems on his part um, and wanted to blame him for what happened. The hospital started an investigation. Issa was moved off of Connie's ward and onto a ward called 085. Whether Creedmoor was intentionally trying to punish him or not, every patient in the hospital knew what 085 meant. That's where they sent people to die. That's where they put people who were problematic, who were drug cases, who were unrepentant. You, you went there to die because no, none of them had family. We were all in the same boat. Amazingly, Issa was still a little unrepentant himself. He was involved with another woman, a nurse on 085. And at this point, the battle between Issa and the hospital had become a full-fledged war. I think he caused problems at Creedmoor, and so Creedmoor caused him some problems. One day, the unit chief knocked on Issa's door. He said he was there to confiscate Issa's paintings. When Issa asked him why, he said, Well, the administration wants to look at it for traces of pathology. He told me that. The unit chief made Issa stand outside the room, and he started taking down Issa's paintings. He walked out with canvases tucked under both arms. 
and then the walls were bare. I just sat in my room and felt, I felt like all is lost. Issa had no privileges, so he was stuck on the ward. With Connie out of the picture, he had lost one of the few people he trusted. He'd been off his medication for months. Losing his paintings, that felt like losing that last part of himself. And he couldn't take it. I got paranoid. I didn't trust anybody anymore. I couldn't trust them. And I didn't trust the food after a while. And I didn't trust anything. And then that just builds and builds and builds. Issa started obsessively cleaning his room. Then he threw away all his clothes. He was put in a straitjacket and sent to a secure ward. You know, he was uh, about as psychotic as you could get. Dr. Murray Shane is a psychiatrist who was on Issa's treatment team. He saw Issa on the secure ward once when he was sick. It's kind of like an intensive care unit for patients who are out of control. And uh, when I saw him, he was running around nude, very incoherent and very preoccupied with delusional ideas about devils and violent, horrible stuff. Here's Dr. Siegel. He was walking counterclockwise, smearing feces, turning in circles. Once the hospital put him back on his medication, though, Issa's delusions quieted. After about 30 days, he came back to the ward. But emotionally, he was rattled. He didn't paint for years after that. Fearful, fearful, scared to death that they'd hurt me again. And when he did start to paint again, it was different. Very puerile, empty boring paintings, um, benign, kind of. Portraits of the Beatles, portraits of people on the ward, portraits of Chuck Berry, things that wouldn't hurt anybody. He started dressing different, too. He got a hold of a catalog and ordered some Dockers pants and button-down shirts. He cut off his dreadlocks. Just wearing suits and ties if I could get away with it. Yeah, just, I don't know. What were you hoping they would see in you then? That I was dischargeable. Clean-cut kid, repentant, ready to move on. Issa kept up that routine for three or four years. But playing the clean-cut kid didn't seem to help his case at all. Each time he went up for uh, privileges, he kind of got knocked down. Dr. Siegel says Issa could never make it to level four privileges. That's the crucial last step before release— When patients get to try going out into the city without a staff escort to take a class or work a part-time job to ease them into the outside world. Things tend to move at a slow pace. The problem with Issa was his movement was glacial in speed. It just wasn't going anywhere. But something had shifted for Issa. Even if the hospital couldn't see it, 10 years had passed. He had started to forgive himself for his mother's death. Maybe for the first time since he'd whispered to his defense lawyer in that courtroom, no, I am guilty. I feel like I am guilty. Issa started to believe that he deserved a chance at life on the outside. He was ready. Just when I kind of realized, okay, I've come through the other end, and I've suffered enough, and then there's no way out. I'd done so much damage to my case and myself. And that would have been the perfect punishment if I I wanted to punish myself, (laughs) you know? It's like I set up this perfect punishment, but uh, I didn't want to be punished anymore. In order to have any hope of getting out, Issa needed the hospital administration to believe that he wasn't dangerous, that he understood his crime, and he wasn't likely to hurt anyone again. In 2002, a new forensic director started working at the hospital, Dr. Angela Haggerty. 
She's a forensic psychiatrist, like Dr. Siegel, and her job at Creedmoor was to assess patients. She would assess how dangerous they were, how they might handle being released from the hospital, and then she would testify about her findings in court. This was a potential turnaround for Issa, because Dr. Haggerty was asked to do a brand new assessment of him, starting from scratch. I went out to see Dr. Haggerty at her house in the suburbs. Hello. Hi, how are you? She wouldn't speak specifically about Issa's case, but she did fill me in on how she does her job. She doesn't assess just anyone. I only take cases that interest me. Her assessments usually begin with a meeting, face-to-face. And they're never what you expect. You know, the guy that you think is really bad turns out to be really not so bad after all. In fact, some of them are wonderful, and then there's people who look wonderful, and they're terrible. A lot of forensic psychiatrists do assessments that take just one or two meetings, but Dr. Haggerty doesn't work that way. She meets with the patient. Essentially, until I, uh, until I understand, long as it takes. As long as it takes to find out the truth, Dr. Haggerty says. She starts from the very beginning, sometimes literally with someone's birth records. There's the record in the hospital, there's the criminal record, there are the school records. She sometimes visits the scene of a crime, even if years and years have passed. Climbing down onto all sorts of sub-basements. She interviews family, friends, acquaintances. She has to gather as much information as possible because, Dr. Haggerty says, pretty much every patient will try to only show her their good side and hide all the bad. I mean, look, let's be real. Regardless of whether or not you need to be there, everybody wants out. Dr. Haggerty began her assessment of Issa in 2002, right when she started working at Creedmoor. They met every week, sometimes more than once a week. And after a month or two, Issa says Dr. Haggerty told them that she wanted to begin therapy, that they needed to go deeper. So that we can get peel the layers of the onion, she said. It's like the layers of an onion. We need to peel back the layers and really get to the core of you. And I was fearful of become, be, being seen as recalcitrant, so I, 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 I consented. Issa and Dr. Haggerty were in therapy for about six months. She also went over all his records, his mom's autopsy report, the police reports. She interviewed his sister, Karen, who hadn't spoken to him since their mother's death. She wrote an extensive report. It's almost 40 pages long. The patient meets full... Full diagnostic criteria also for narcissistic personality disorder, the symptom of which overlap considerably with those of schizophrenia. Narcissistic personality disorder, another diagnosis. His need for admiration and grandiosity and lack of empathy are core factors for this diagnosis. The patient expects to be recognized as superior to others. His need to be extraordinary extends beyond his artwork to his relationships. He needs to be in the role of savior, in charge of the relationship with women. He is preoccupied with fantasies of success that are at times grossly unrealistic. Dr. Haggerty also wrote that Issa was predatory, sexually aggressive, and dangerous. I I was so distraught after reading this. I I, I was shaken. I was was wondering, am I a sexual predator? Am I this person that she sees and is clearly going to testify to ad nauseum? I really didn't know. Dr. Siegel read the report, too. You know, you read the report, he sounds kind of scary. Deceitful, manipulative, that he tended to, you know, manipulate women, got involved in inappropriate relationships, painted a picture of him as being, you know, kind of a dangerous uh, individual who might do something to hurt anyone at any time. Reading the report... Even knowing Issa for years, I started to question what I knew about him. 
Had he somehow been manipulating me? What if I'd been wrong to trust him all this time? When I interviewed Dr. Haggerty, I was desperate to ask her how she'd come to her conclusions. I, I have your report, um, and I've interviewed all these other people specifically about this case, and I know you don't want to comment on this case. I tried one more um, time to find out. Here's the thing. Ethically, I, if it's hard for a subject to listen in court, what's it like for a subject to listen to a forensic psychiatrist talk about them on the radio. I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. Dr. Haggerty's assessment went out to every court and state agency charged with evaluating Issa's case. From his perspective, the report basically locked the door on him and threw away the key. Issa's case was stalled. 2003, 2004, 2005. Years were going by and nothing was happening. Patients are supposed to appear in court every two years so their case can go up for review. Usually the patient wants to get out, and the hospital wants to keep them in. It's very difficult to prevail in those hearings if the hospital says the individual needs to stay. It, it's, it can be difficult to convince a judge to let you go. It's true. The hospital always wins. The judge will always defer to the doctors in the hospital. They've known you for as long as you've been here. So when they're saying, don't let this guy out, the judge is going to say, well, okay. And they'll listen and they'll go along with it. If he was ever going to get out of the hospital, Issa had to sway the court back to his side. It hadn't worked to wear dockers and button-down shirts. It hadn't worked to try to convince the hospital psychiatrist that he was sane. I said, okay, is that how you want to play it? I'm going to get another doctor. And I hired another doctor, which blew their mind. It blew their mind because no one knew where Issa had gotten the money for the doctor. But he'd been selling his art from inside the hospital for years. And no matter how offensive or pathological Creedmoor found Issa's art to be, the outside world loved it. I've sold a lot of good pieces for a lot of good money over the years. Issa had sold some paintings for a few hundred dollars. Some went for thousands. And I always saved my money. Didn't know for what. He used his nest egg to hire Dr. Alan Reichman, an independent forensic psychiatrist, to do another assessment of him. Issa called his move stacking the deck. Dr. Reichman warned him that he could be spending his life savings on a lock and key because he could do the assessment and still decide Issa wasn't ready to be released. If I have the, any, any reasonable doubt, then I have to say no. I don't care who it is that's hiring me. I can't give a dishonest opinion just to please them, and I will not. Dr. Reichman did his assessment, and then the hospital wanted to do more evaluations, personality testing. There were years of delays. Meanwhile, Issa put all his energy into preparing for court. He smuggled in a laptop so he could do research on how to win a case like his. Court hearings finally began in 2008. The judge sifted through stacks of records and reports. There were hours and hours of testimony. Four doctors weighed in, including Dr. Haggerty, appearing on behalf of the hospital. The testimony from Dr. Reichman was short and completely favorable. In fact, he stated that Issa could have been ready for release from Creedmoor as early as 1997. It is presently my understanding that very little, if anything, has been done to prepare Mr. Ibrahim for discharge, such as a significant increase in his privileges, and that, that was indeed the case. Uh, 
they, they take their sweet time. Dr. Siegel also testified. He noted that it had been 10 years since Issa's last psychotic episode, that he was on monthly injections of Haldol, an antipsychotic medication, and knew that he needed to be on it for the rest of his life. There were five or six or seven reports describing his behavior. The guy, he had done nothing. He hadn't assaulted anyone. He had not refused an injection. He hadn't reported a voice. No one saw him talking to himself. He really hadn't done anything that showed he needed to be in a hospital. Dr. Janos Martin, Issa's mentor at the arts program, testified on his behalf as well. He said Issa was ready to go. And the presiding judge started to see a pattern. Judge William Erlbaum of the New York State Supreme Court. Here you have three mental health professionals, all of them in this case saying, yes, this is a guy who's been doing well for a long time. Everybody agrees. This is a guy who apparently poses no danger to anybody. Everybody agrees. This is a guy who in all many respects is ready for release right now. And then there was Dr. Haggerty. The director saying, well, there's some truth to that. This guy's doing really well. But for Dr. Haggerty, even if Issa was doing really well, Creedmoor still needed to keep him longer. They had to get him to level four privileges to ease him back into society. But that was the level they'd never given him after all those years in the hospital. And the doctor believed that she, as far as she knows, it would never happen. So this is what it's going to be for him forever. This is his existential situation. He's doing real well. Everybody says he's doing real well. Everyone else says he'll probably make it. Several doctors say it's unconscionable to keep him here longer. It's destructive. Judge Earlbaum wrote in his decision that the hospital had been giving Issa false hope, that their promises of future release were nothing more than a pipe dream. But Earlbaum saved his sharpest words for Dr. Haggerty and the report she had worked so hard on, saying that her conclusions about his being dangerous were wholly speculative and that there was no credible reason to deny Issa privileges. He wrote that keeping Issa in the hospital was unconscionable. The decision was clear. In April 2009, Judge Earlbaum granted Issa a conditional release from Creedmoor. Freedom. What had been called Issa's fantasies of success, his desire to be extraordinary, those things would no longer be a deficit. In fact, you could argue that those were the very qualities that saved Issa from living out his entire life at Creedmoor. In a strange coincidence, Issa ended up moving off the ward on his birthday, which he now calls his rebirth day. There was no tearful goodbyes. Thought, I thought I'd get that from some of them, but it was, it was just like, okay, bye. Yeah. So there was, was there anyone on the ward who said a real goodbye to you? The guys, the guys get you. I, you know, I, I really have to say, I understand it. I understand it because I spent 20 years saying goodbye to guys, saying goodbye to guys even worse that who came after me, who left before me. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a mix of, okay, good luck, you son of it. You know, it's just like, so I knew exactly where they were coming. So I, it was just, yeah, bye, bye, bye. Issa didn't go very far at first. He had to move to a halfway house on Creedmoor's grounds to prove he could handle his freedom. It wasn't until four years later that Issa got approved to move into his own apartment. And on a rainy day this March, I drove out to Creedmoor to meet him. Hello! 
His arms were full of clothes on hangers in clear plastic dry cleaning bags. That thing waterproof? And just put this in your back seat. Um, or trunk, maybe? Oh, great. Toss them on in. Oh, man. So today is March 12th, uh, Emancipation Day. Um, this is my last day on Creedmoor Grounds. It's been a long time coming, let me tell you. Uh, it's just amazing. And you're driving me off. Who would have thought? I was wondering who would be the person to drive me off the ground, and it's you. That's great. That's great. Let's get in, right? Yeah. <laughs> I slowly made the turn out of the gates of Creedmoor. Here we go. And towards Issa's new home. Boy, this is exciting. This is exciting. This is weird. Get those wipers on so I can see, so I can see my future. <laughs> oh, boy. But what would happen with this family now that he was out? I went to see his brother Isak and his sister Karen. Karen was still living in the family home where Isa had killed his mother. They didn't even know that Isa had been released from the hospital. I had to break the news to them. You know, I pray he can find peace within himself, you know, eventually, because that's a life sentence in itself. Poor Issa, I know that my mother would want us to be like she would be, forgive. You know, and if I can't go to this and say, you know, I forgive you, you know, if I can't look him in the eye and tell him I forgive him, then what's the point, you know? And uh, I don't know if I'll ever reach that, that, that point in my life. You know, he's going to take that one to the grave. So, you know, all I can do is say a prayer. I went to see Isa at his new apartment a few months after moving day. And his new life was in full swing. I grew a beard, yeah. I don't know what, what made me do it. but uh, He'd stayed up all night the night before, recording new songs. But he wasn't sure what to paint next, now that the Creedmoor era was over. There was one last thing I had to ask Isa. How did he feel finally moving forward with his own life after he'd taken his mother's? Still guilt. There's still guilt. There'll always be. But since he got out of the hospital, Isa says, something had shifted. It's going to sound symptomatic, but I really do feel like when I'm alone and I'm creating, my mom is in the room with me. I feel her. Like, like when I'm finishing a painting, when I'm coming around the clubhouse turn on a painting, and I'm really just nailing it. I feel her just going, yeah, that's it, that's it, that's it. Yeah. When I'm writing a song and it's, and it's almost done and, it's, and I'm playing it to myself and it's sounding really good, like something I could never really write, She's there in the room going, that's it, that's good. I like that part. That's how she always was with me. She just loved the hell out of me. And she would want me to suffer. For the first time in his life, Issa can close and lock his own door. <laughs> Take care. He's 48 years old. 